Hello, friends. This is Maureen Lee Maloney, and welcome back to My Doc Journey, the show where I reveal every step in my process of creating a feature-length documentary, even the steps where I fall down and cry. All right, so I'm here interviewing Karen Whitehead, a documentary filmmaker, um, primarily about her latest film, uh, which is called Imitating Life. And it is, uh, or the subtitle is The Audacity of Suzanne Heinz. And Suzanne is this really, really cool artist. I'm just going to read really briefly the description on the IDA website here to give you an idea. Uh, Imitating Life, The Audacity of Suzanne Heights is about a loudmouth girl from Yonkers and her strange and entertaining photographic crusade to change minds about women's roles observed over more than 15 years. Weaving candid and humorous backstage footage with video diaries and archival material, the entire process and struggles inside Heinz's pursuit of her life's work is laid bare in an intimate portrait of an artist, blurring the lines between art and life. As social media catapults her interest in her mannequin-aided portraits of womanhood and perfect family bliss, Heinz's resilience is put to the test by real-life challenges in her fight to harness her viral influence and produce more art for good. Imitating life unfolds as Heinz races to triumph in art, identity, and survival. And I fortunately got to see this film at the Boulder Film Festival, and I totally love it. I fell in love with Suzanne. She's an incredible person. Um, and I'm excited to talk to you about how you made this film and, and you know, about your um, your film career in general. So thank you, Karen, for meeting with me and speaking with me. It's really delightful to be with you. And I want to thank you for uh, being so enthusiastic uh, about the film. Uh, you're one of the few people who got a chance to see it before our film festival run was cut short. Yeah, that's so unfortunate. <laughs> yes, uh, many filmmakers have been struggling um, with that situation, but we can talk about that later. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i excited to um, talk always talk about the art of documentary filmmaking and my own journey and help other people who are, you know, also forging a way forward in, in this sphere. Um, I think documentary film is really important. I think we need it more than ever now. And um, I'm particularly keen on supporting fellow women who are forging ahead in this sphere because it is so hard still to do this and it's still dominated by men yeah yeah absolutely I agree with all of that <laughs> so I'm curious about how you got started in filmmaking did you always want to make films yeah, so as you can probably tell by my voice, I, I'm not a native. Um, I grew up in London and I was very lucky that I was really close to things like theatre, the arts and media experiences. You know, it was very popular as a teenager. I'd go with a bunch of school friends to watch uh, programmes being recorded at the BBC in London, a whole variety of programmes. 
And I was fascinated by that whole world of production and just seeing how uh, programs were created, you know, and put on the screen. And we'd go watch a lot of different uh, programs being made um, from what you would call talk shows or a couple of comedy programs, um, you know, sitcoms as you call them here. And I think that really had a deep influence on me, but I also loved um, growing up about every Saturday, the BBC would always show one of the Beatles films and I, I'll never forget one Saturday, it was a hard day's night, which was actually made, you know, a couple of years before I was born. Um, and this was Richard Lester's film. And it's actually really, if you, it's worth looking at. I always encourage um, aspiring filmmakers to go look at it, um, the documentary filmmakers, because it's very much the first mockumentary so it's sort of like a musical comedy. And the, the opening scene is them running, being chased by halls of fans through one of the main train stations in London. Mm-hmm. And the way it is shot and how it is done and then how the rest of the film is done, if you really look at it, 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 it is so clever because it has those all those documentary elements mm-hmm. um, in visual about visual storytelling that we should all be thinking about when we're making a film. Um, so that film always sat with me, you know, as a big influence on this is really interesting, you know, just observing, okay, Beatles are a famous band, you know, but it was just that idea of, of the way the camera was used, um, the way it was directed that really inspired me to think about what would it be like to be behind the camera doing this kind of thing. But I was never drawn to fiction. I was always interested in I think as I got through my high school years, I became much more interested in journalism. So my first jobs, actually, uh, well, while I was in college, I was involved in college radio and, te- and TV stations, and I did journalism courses. And so my first job really came was in newspaper, though, because it was easier to get jobs in newspaper. And a lot of people would start in newspaper as a reporters, you know, um, I got involved in more investigative journalism pieces, and then I got a job as a researcher in television. So that's really how how it started for me. You know, I came from a pretty traditional journalism background, and then I worked my way up from being a researcher to being a producer and a director on network television programs in in the current affairs sphere, and and that was a really good. Um, background before going into independent production which I moved into when I moved to the States and I was based in Washington DC and there's a big indie production scene there and it was it was really a great sort of thing to do while I was raising children to work in independent production and have more of my own schedule and not doing mad sort of weekly turnaround programs where you you know you'd start in London one day and the next day you'd be flying to New York or somewhere else to interview someone and it was just crazy schedule and then the program would be on the air at the end of the week so you're editing in the middle of the night I I just needed a break from that that was a you know it was good to exp- I like the idea of inhabiting stories for longer you know than those fast turnaround programs which is what I most of my career had been in Wow, yeah, that's 
that's really cool and it's it's interesting that you have that um very professional journalistic um uh insight and especially you know seeing the the BBC productions because that has to be so totally different from uh like independent film production independent documentary production especially Yes, because, well, on, on the practical level, you know, I worked in big teams mm-hmm. and we were funded. Yeah. And we were, <laughs> that's a really yeah. big difference. That makes a big difference. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I actually had a salary as well for a few Oh, years. my God. What is that? I know. What is that? Um, but it, it, I think what I got from that experience is, is it was a lot of on-the-job training. That's how you worked your way up. Mm-hmm. In that television in the UK and I worked for you know I did programs for ITV Channel 4 and BBC and and it was you know you couldn't you know you couldn't screw up in terms of on the research you you really had to have you have it together so and there was a lot of fast thinking going on on the ground when we were filming and going places and you had to very quickly get rapport with people you were interviewing and sometimes you know I spent it was harder than other times like I spent three weeks in Japan um, tracking down a uh, a war criminal two war criminals Um, and it was for an anniversary story and it was about having uh, forgiveness and you know not so much restitution, but it was really about the art of forgiveness. And it was for a current affairs doc. And it was really hard work because you're dealing with translations and misunderstandings all the time while you're filming. I mean, Lost in Translation was, I lived that really in many ways, including the karaoke for three weeks. But at the same time, you're trying to build relationships and it's really hard. So I think those experiences helped me think about how how would you do this in something you can completely control yourself but you have no support network the support network you have will be what you build for your film Mm -hmm. for your story Mm -hmm. and so it's a radically different process when you're doing indie production but for me my experience of having worked in those kind of a little bit crazy, fast-paced programming and having the journalism background, it saved me from some mistakes, you know, that I could have, could have made very easily. And it, and it helped me get through some of the challenges um, of the, especially a first indie film, the film I did before this one. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, everyone has their, brings their own story, their own experiences into their filmmaking. Um, and I think the, the one strand is always is, you know, telling a good story and having a good character. That doesn't change if right. you're doing, whether you're doing, you know, a TV show or as it were, or an independent film. Yeah, totally. That that makes a lot of sense. And I, I actually have one other question about sort of the difference between the very structured uh, filmmaking and indie filmmaking. I think a lot about, and I think a lot of indie filmmakers probably think a lot about um, permits and things like that. You know, there's 
there's a, I'm sure working in a, in a newsroom, you have to, you're very buttoned up, you know, all your I's are dotted and all your T's are crossed. And, but as an indie filmmaker, because of time or budget constraints or whatever it might be, you know, sometimes you're going into a place where you're like, technically you should have a permit, but maybe you're not. Do you have any experience with that or thoughts on that kind of like guerrilla filmmaking, if you will? Yeah, well, I think all independent filmmaking is guerrilla filmmaking, actually, mm. because it, it, it that is where I actually liked being released from those kind of bureaucratic constraints. But I didn't. But but that doesn't mean I'm forgetting the main principles of journalism and how you deal with access and build trust. Mm-hmm. I always used to. So from my experience of the last two for these last two films, I always made the effort to pick up the phone. A lot of people hide an email. That seems to be a a problem we have anyway, currently. I would always pick up the phone and try to build relationships and talk to people about places I wanted to get access to. So rather than having to do the maybe fourfold piles of paperwork that I did when I was working in network television, I would make sure I at least had a verbal and then I'd back up with an email and I would always have release forms. I always have release forms with me wherever I go. And um, I'm quite good. I did a quite, one of the programs I worked on was a series, a little bit like 60 minutes and I did quite a lot of doorstepping. So I've done that and it's based on the justification, you know, principle um, that exists in, sort of, you know, a lot of convention that journalists follow. Um, so I've seen all sides of it, but on my my goal in filmmaking at this point and the kind of stories I'm interested in telling and the people I want to work with, it's a collaboration. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's not, you know, if someone really is uncomfortable and doesn't want to give you access somewhere, uh, unless they're like a mass murderer that you and no one else has found, you know, and you're trying to reveal them, you know, I I wouldn't I wouldn't really push, you know, you want to have the collaborative process. Um, you don't, you know, there's nothing to be gained from um, setting up an, a, an adversarial situation in the kind of filmmaking I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so back to imitating life. Tell me a little bit about you know how you got started with your film and how you met Suzanne. Yeah, um, so so the the it, this is great because it actually all happened in Denver. <laughs> so Suzanne and I met at the Voices Women's Plus Film Festival, which you know is part of the Denver mm-hmm. Film Society. Because my first indie doc, Her Aim is True, which is about this uh, rock and roll photographer that no one ever heard of, but she was a woman who was shooting rock and roll 10 years before Annie Leibovitz picked up a camera. And it was she was based in Seattle and she worked in the Pacific Northwest and she shot some big bands on their first tours, um, people like Rolling Stones, you might have heard wow, of. Um, yeah. Uh, and The Who. Uh, So she did some concert photography, but really the film is about the relationship she had with the local bands, and she ended up doing this amazing shoot with Neil Young. But no one had heard of her, and her 
her actual archive was literally in a dumpster and was found. And I met her when she was 92. And so my film is about really what you'd call a classic artist profile, but it's a hidden story. You know, it's a woman that was doing all this cool, innovative stuff and, you know, extraordinary album covers. And she was 50, you know, in her early 50s when she started doing rock and roll photography. So it's an amazing story. And that film was on the festival circuit and came to Denver. Um, And Suzanne had a short in that festival, which blew my mind. And we were asked to sit on a panel together about women in the arts and, you know, it was called cross, Crossing the Line, I think, and about pushing boundaries and dealing with stereotypes about women's roles and sort of working in this field. And we had a lot in common and she made me laugh. And I just I just had to keep talking to her after the panel because I just really wanted to know more about, you know, on, the, on one level that I was fascinated, like how you deal with um, travelling with mannequins dressed like Cary Grant and getting into taxi cabs in Paris with them, that just, why, what motivated her to do this? You know, I had thousands of questions in my head and she was so funny and she was so open. And we just started this conversation with, well, you know, would you, you know, if what about if I actually observe you doing what you're doing and what that would look like? And she really loved my film about uh, this photographer and it was just interesting. There was a sort of a crossover and an open door because of, you know, we were both in that in that festival and we were both women who were exploring visual storytelling in different ways and had different experiences. And I just felt like there was a something about Suzanne, you know, she was being really gutsy mm-hmm. and defiant. And I just thought it should be more in the center. It should have more, you know, I could see an interesting journey with her, mm-hmm. seeing where it was going and how it would end and what it, what she was trying to do and the impact she wanted to have, you know, and I just thought it was just interesting, you know, to me, I could see her experience as something that would be valuable, you know, to bring to a wider audience, but also explore, you know, in so many ways. Absolutely you know, really behind the scenes. And and I I mean, that's goes back to my whole thinking about why I love making documentary film and the documentary process is that I think you really always have to tell a good story. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 and you have to have really strong, at least one strong main character. And, and I talk about it in those terms, like people talk about fiction, because, you know, you, I don't want to go to watch a film and be lectured you know, I, I, I want to be, you know, inspired and I want to be made to think, but I want it, I want it to be like a movie. I want it to be a good story. Mm-hmm. So that I just felt Suzanne was up for it and it was a really unique collaboration. And I brought on board um, a close colleague, uh, producing partner, Catherine Wilkins de Francis, uh, like me, based in D.C., uh, Washington, D.C. at the time, and... And we just, I wanted to see what her reaction was to Suzanne. And we kind of had the same sort of thoughts about it and interest in Suzanne. And, and she was totally up for it. And, and so we, you know, it was a great bit of teamwork being able to work with Catherine, who's an amazing producer. 
And I loved that experience after you've done one indie film really on your own. It's really nice to have share the producing and have, you know, have someone else on the same page as you about figuring all the stuff out about how to put it together. But going back to Suzanne, I just think, you know, she's another example of women are putting themselves out there and really being quite brave and, and saying something that's worth listening to, but visually and the way she does it in her experience, it, it can be very entertaining as well to watch. Oh yeah. That's, that's awesome. I, it, it blows my mind a little bit um, to hear your story about uh, the rock and roll photographer, because definitely when I was watching the film, imitating life the thing that struck me was like how fucking punk rock Suzanne is that was the thought that I had do you know when you first see her punk rock is not what you think you know because we have you know we all have like the image of what punk rock looks like in our in our heads right but yeah when you hear about her story and just what she's what she does you're like, oh, this is, she's so punk rock. <laughs> that's what I thought. Yeah, anyway. I, I think that's totally true. We even, and we even, you know, in the soundtrack, if yes. the soundtrack gives you a little bit yep. of, of, of that characteristic <laughs> in places. Totally, it totally does. It's a great soundtrack too. <laughs> so how, how did you start um, with the film? And did you, did you right. have a clear story? Like kind of what, what was your... What was your pre-production like for this? Okay, so really, as I say, I immediately, you know, went back after meeting Suzanne, thinking about all the pieces. I think even on the plane ride back from the festival, I was writing notes about the pieces that I that were going, you know, and all my questions. And, and I just had this about 10 pages of scribbles and Venn diagrams, you know, with boxes and thinking it through and I took that to Catherine and I showed Catherine her short and then we did a chat with Catherine I think Suzanne Catherine and I had several kind of like you know FaceTimes and phone calls and and thinking it through and we came up with um a basic treatment which is what most people start with but it was based on seeing what what are the point we had to sit down and and come up with what were the key what makes this a film I think that's something you have to always ask yourself at the beginning mm-hmm. I'm not one of those people who thinks you just go and shoot something and then it naturally just comes together I think that's a load of um rubbish <laughs> actually people I mean some people might go do that and it works for them that to me isn't what I'm doing um so the first critical piece we felt we had access and archive so we have some we have our you know Suzanne totally up for it and interested in expanding and being able to give us video diaries and things and we talked that through um beyond what you know she'd made these two or three shorts uh, uh, in the course of the film, while we were doing the film, she had her shorts. You know, she had a short about the whole project that she calls Playing House. And then she had created one, and I helped her with some behind the scenes stuff about that, about the uh, the wedding that she, yeah, 
which doesn't really marry a mannequin, as I'd like to point that out. It's an artistic performance. Um, performance art is what we're talking about, um, extreme art activism. So she had those, but then we talked about expanding and we, you know, she was willing to put a camera on a dashboard of a car because she always has a long commute to work. And that is where she does a lot of her thinking. So from my point of view, that I knew we would capture some really off the cuff and interesting moments, which you we in fact inject throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but so access and archive, and by archive, because she's been doing this at the point that I met her for more than fifteen years, she had uh, or be it being suggested to her, you know, as well to do some. You know, she's done some filming with like the first sort of early smart films of just taking the mannequins to places. So you have photographs, you have some video. We have the opportunity to expand and do more in terms of like real sort of behind the scenes stuff and video diaries as well as traditional shooting. So that is unique. And the kind of access she was wanting to give us really, I think it does give you a chance to take the audience sort of somewhere other than the usual artist profile. I didn't want to do something traditional. I wanted it to be quirky and offbeat and different. And she lends herself to that. So I think that, so our our pre-production process really was also, was from that base point also peppered with um, doing lots of obvious research about, I watched with Catherine a lot of documentaries that have been done on artists in the last 10, 15, 20 years, going back 20 years. And we came to a short list of five or six that we thought, showed interesting elements in terms either of how they were structured or visual style or how the artist's voice was used or, you know. Um, And that was important to me to see sort of what we felt, you know, from a storytelling point of view may or may not work or just just, just to sort of sit in our heads and sort of, you know, think through. And then we came up with a list of what we call our themes that everyone does in order to build more of a outline structure for shooting, you know, and a timeline, you know. So those are the nuts and bolts things that I'm sure any other filmmaker listening to this will understand. You know, you've got to have your outline structure, a timeline that connects your character and their journey or uh, events that are coming up or key markers in you know key points to the story or you know situations they're dealing with and and that was our baseline and that's how we kind of went so we met in 2014 at the festival in March and the film was you know the film festival cut was completed in the early summer of 2019 so that gives you so like a lot of films it's usually at least five years yeah yeah that sounds <laughs> that's about the right. baseline mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> so but production and pre-production often get meshed and I think a lot of people don't really realize that because mm-hmm. you start in one direction and then things happen and you pull back and you go in another direction I mean I think that happens to everyone oh, and yeah. so you yeah so you kind of go back and forth a bit 
No, for sure. I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, a worldwide pandemic happens, like, just right as you're, like, early on starting your film. Yeah. And, you know, who could have seen that happen? Um, yeah. Not this girl, I can tell you that. It makes us stronger. Yes, yes, you're right. It does make us stronger. Um, did you do any other, like, other than your one producer, did you do any reaching out to larger production companies or um, networks or anything like that? Um, I think Catherine and I felt like we felt very strong as a team, mm -hmm. you know, and we did bring in, we had two or three people consulting for us, I think, and I was actually going to say, you know, for anyone listening to this that's looking at documentary filmmaking, you need an inner circle of mm -hmm. two or three people to bounce off as consultants. But, and I don't mean your mum or your partner who are going to say, yeah, that's great, I love it. I, I actually do mean people with a professional um, kind of background in, in, in this who will be your first sounding off point. What does that look like to you? You show them a couple of scenes or something, or you talk them through something you're doing or trying to get reactions from, because you need that. So I'm a big believer in that process of mm -hmm. having some kind of ongoing kind of a, a mini pool or almost like a focus group maybe. Yeah. Because because at some, because it, you need to know it, it, does anyone want to watch your film? If you're going to spend five years immersed in something and you're, and as we all know, it's a lot of blood, sweat and tears mm -hmm. making a film and finding funding and believing in it. it. You can't make a film for yourself. You have to make a film that you want. The whole point is to reach an audience and you need some people to bounce off. So we did have, you know, this core two or three people in our network that wouldn't be afraid to tell us, don't get it, not sure about that. You know, you need that. Or what do you think about this? Have you got any ideas of where we could find this or how we might do this? Um, and I was, I've always been open to that kind of process. And I think um, the other things we were fortunate because of the network we're in, I guess, where the women in the film community is so important. Um, I actually brought on board for principal photographer um a fantastic um you know editor and video journalist from um Pierre Catal who's now based in Rome he's been doing some incredible stories about the impact of the pandemic there and he does stuff people see his stuff in the New York Times and all over but he was he's a fantastic uh shooter because he's got an editing mind too and it, and really good with this visual storytelling and you know we wanted some really candid and like personal stuff and so you know we used um like um a canon 5d and a sony and we just had this small it's always small cameras and just really very accessible and and you know he's really interested in photography too because he'd helped me with um some editing uh, on the rough cut of harem is true so we had a really good connection. So we were able to bring him on board for um, shoots in Denver and New York, which were two big shoots we did, uh, two of our main shoots. Um, and then we hired other people or worked with other people too. And there, there were a couple of people that through the production 
Uh, here, people would help with Suzanne on her shorts, who were fantastic and helped us on some stuff too. Um, so we were very, very lucky. You know, the combination of working with um, fantastic production support here and in DC, because that's what you need, because wherever you're based, you've got to figure out a network. So that's mm-hmm. always good. But sometimes you just have to pick up local crews and and based on recommendations. But basically between Denver production scene and the DC and New York women in film groups, we were able to really, and Suzanne's um, network, we were able to really come up with what we needed and had fantastic support from a lot of people. Were there ever people that you started working with that you were like, oh, okay, this isn't working out. We have to go with somebody else. Cause I am curious to, I'm curious to know like how people deal with that sort of thing where you at some point, you know, you have artistic differences or whatever it might be and you just have to like break up a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think in my career that's happened to me one or two times. Uh, I mean, I think we had a great, I've been lucky that a lot, you know, both my features I I've had in each situation, fantastic local support when I say local, I mean local to the subject. So I had a great production team based in Seattle because uh, it, it was the financially, I couldn't, I flew back and forth to Seattle over a three, four year period to make that film. And it was urgent because, you know, your subject matter is 92. You've got to really, you know, you don't waste time. Um, and I was recommended, there's a very, again, a very lively production scene there. And um, I was recommended a fantastic team to work with. And I was, and I managed to keep that team over that period. And like me, they just wanted this story to be out. And, you know, it worked. And I used that network because I think that's something important. Your subject matter isn't always on your doorstep. And if it's not, which is, you know, in both my cases with these films, you do rely on recommendations. And but it that's so I've not had a situation. I think, you know, it's more happened to me when I was doing those fast turnaround things and you would just go pick up like a local, you know, news and, and sound person. Once in a while, you realize you're getting someone who who doesn't you know they're just doing it in a it's a one day's job for them and they're not dedicated into it like you are and you you're I've had those sort of situations the the most common situation I've had has has, it's not so I don't know if it's artistic differences but sometimes it's just plain right male chauvinism gets in the way and they they I have once had a cameraman this is for a UK network television program went to shoot and a cameraman I our train was late or something and we picked up a car and we were getting to this location to shoot and the cameraman had already set up the interview in the room and I had a male researcher with me and uh, and he started talking to him and I was the director (laughs) And I said, okay, thank you for, I appreciate, you know, uh, the way you said, you know, that was nice of you to experience that as, can you now, we're actually going to shoot this way, not doing it that way, we're going to do this. And he still continued to talk to the male researcher. Oh, no. And that 
is not, you know, I'm talking yeah. about, you know, I mean, that happened. I'm hoping that happens less now, but mm-hmm. that sort of thing happened a lot in yeah. network TV stuff. But I find the independent film community very collaborative in this country. And mm-hmm. I've, I've not had, you know, once in a while you might get someone that you think you're not sure if that person's the little, you know, somebody on the, you know, the general production team, they might be a little bit slow in terms of like, you're saying, okay, we need to get this going now. But I've not had a real fundamental artistic difference issue with, with any of the production team we've worked with really sure. on anything. Sure, sure. Well, that's good. It, it does sound like it's valuable to have a team and, you know, have that relationship between each other and understanding of, of that common goal that you're all working yeah. towards. Yeah, but I would, I would say on that point, though, if it's possible to try and have some consistency, at least have a principal photographer, you know, mm-hmm. a DP that you can take to at least the majority of your shoots, if, yeah. if that works out for you practically and financially, I highly recommend that because you get, you can tell mm-hmm. when you, it really is evident when you've got that same eye or the continuity is, is really important. And it's relationship building as well with your subject matter. And yeah. This makes the shoots a lot easier because yeah. they're long days. <laughs> yeah. All right. Moving into the big question that everybody always has about fundraising and uh, <laughs> what what was your fundraising strategy? Um, well, first of all, you have to be realistic. If you are making a film that is an artist profile, someone who's under the radar, it's really hard you know, to have someone that's under the radar. And then it's an arts, it's a quirky offbeat arts doc. That puts you pretty much close to the bottom of the list. You have to really, you know, it's not a, you know, it's not a hard hitting social issue in your face thing that, that because it's, because although funding has improved in the last 10 years, particularly for women, you know, there are a lot more, the list is longer of grants you can apply for. But here's the, that's the good news. The bad news is there are many, many more people um, accessing, you know, quite reasonably the, you know, documentary production. Um, and the gear is cheaper. It's easier to get going. People are making whole films on their iPhones. Yeah. You know, you, you can, your competition with levels are so much higher now so even though there's more grants also grants it's a long process you know some six months or more it depends what your subject is and what's going on most people are constantly grant writing while they're filming and that that's really our situation is that we certainly created a pitch deck I mean, Catherine and I have both produced, you know, been involved with several other films, either as the producer or the director or part of a team. So this was not our first rodeo. And we really understand that climate. We've both been involved with crowdsourcing campaigns, Kickstarter stuff. So we've both had that background. So we knew, we just went at it on five or six different levels, but in the end, what worked for this film, we got shortlisted for a couple of grants, but um, 
and we had a couple of angel investors that were interested and you know that did you know at least in one case we got and that did actually turn into funding but it's it's really what worked for us was private fundraising and donations um and reduced rates the usual a lot of in kind that usual mixture um so i think this is a really tough question for me because Mm -hmm. I like to say that I agree with the principle that you shouldn't really film anything until you know you've got a grant but we all know that you have to at least make a pretty darn decent uh 10 minute fundraising trailer if nothing else so I I, when I mentor other filmmakers I always say yeah, you do have to get your credit card out a little bit, mm-hmm. sometimes more than you intend to, and make something. And then, you, but the key thing is you must find a core audience and group of supporters. But I would say apply for grants, but don't rely on them. Yeah. So it sounds like you were really kind of pounding the pavement looking for individual donors. Yeah. Yes, we did. And, and, you know, in the end, it was a really, we almost, I mean, we got to a point where we got to as far as we could and we stopped. We actually ended up a whole year not doing anything because we just, you know, we just couldn't, we started to, you know, you do go through, you do doubt yourselves mm-hmm. at some point, you know, because you think, Maybe it's it's a really hard film until you see the whole her whole story and whole film. I think Suzanne's story is hard for people to sort of people sort of scratch their heads and look at you and not sure they get it. Uh, even though we had really good responses from our um, fundraising trailer, it's still you know it's it's also everything you know we budgeted it like you do as everyone does in a realistic way. It's always you know, the, the post-production stuff was hard, you know, to, 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 it was hard to finish that always we get stuck, I think. When you, you know, you can shoot so much and then you have to stop and you think you've got the arc and you've got it together, but, you know, you've got to find a way to fund post-production mm-hmm. to continue. And it, we had lots of material, but it was just really hard to you know, find that last bit is always harder, I think. Yeah. At least you have your footage by then, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think, the, were there any particular tactics that um, really helped you with the the finding donors? Like, did you look at certain organizations or anything like that? Like people who donated to arts organizations, for instance? Yeah, I mean, we we went through all of that that stuff and we certainly tapped everything people connected to the arts. And we, even when we were shooting in New York, um, we had an event at a gallery where she was having her work shown and, you know, we made some connections there. But I just just think it was a particularly difficult... um, time as well when we were I think crowdfunding has gone through in the last couple of years particularly it's you know in the early years of Kickstarter it was great but now crowdfunding 
in the last two or three years, it's much harder. Right. So yeah. it wasn't easy. I'm, I'm certainly, you know, we made it, but it wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, it was really tough. It was tougher than when I did my first film. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. I think so, yeah. So about, you know, you kind of mentioned that, you know, your, your, your pre-production and your production were kind of going on around the same time. Um, about how long was it in total and about how long, like, I'm, I guess at this point, we've, what we haven't really talked about is how long did that post-production take? Yeah, so the, the whole journey, as I said, was about five years. Mm-hmm. And we had pretty much uh, a whole year where we just kind of came to a halt because we were, but we're then we, we were trying to find a way forward into post-production. We had a really good relationship with a fantastic editor in DC, uh, Pippa McBride, and she was totally up for helping us through and we collaborated with her and we were very lucky that she was a big fan of telling the story and you know she helped us gave some good guidance and gave us a way to move forward really because she was willing you know to work at a really reasonable rate for us Mm. um and I think that really helped um and she you know we had a collaborative process with the writing you know and from that point getting to a um you know, based on our expanding our treatment, you know, that evolves throughout the process. So I think we had about a six-month period where we were just sort of gearing up to get into the edit room um, when the when we had the finance ready to go. And, um, I mean, Catherine really did an amazing job pulling that all together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we were very lucky that it, that it happened and, you know, she worked very hard to make it happen. So it sounds like you kind of already had everything shot before you really started editing. Is that right? Yes. Well, obviously, along the way, we made two or three short things and mm-hmm. like a fundraising trailer right. like you do. But basically, we we had um, a situation where we worked through from our treatment to writing the story, you know, writing it into more like a, like a, you know, almost like a paper cut, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is a really old fashioned thing, but that's because I came out, you know, my background. (laughs) You see, you know, like actually doing a paper cut. And I did do the, I do the old fashioned thing with, uh, you know, Catherine, where we had all our, you know, all our index cards, and, and, and move them around, you know, on a board and things like that and lay them out and play with different, you know, themes, key bites and just ideas and then looking at how it worked in the structure we thought we had, the story arc. And we had all that and we had Pippa involved with it um, as we were going into, you know, to create a rough cut and from that, you know, a film festival cut. So it's about, I'm trying to think, I think it probably was several months mm-hmm. of working it through to get before we actually sat down. And, and then I guess it I must have been about six weeks, seven weeks editing, I think, mm-hmm. to get to the final cut. Well, and I'm sure, you know, doing that paper edit really, you know, saves you time and money 
in the actual edit suite, right? Yeah, I, I mean, you still in the end, you know, it's the whole story of editing, you know, you're still doing a lot in that period, you know, like mm-hmm. Pippa's in, but we're looking at things and we're going, that doesn't work. What about this? You know, because things sometimes don't work on pay, you know, that when you do that, but you, it's really important to, we had a, you know, close collaborative process with with Pippa and she she was our third eye, you know. <laughs> so what are the next steps with this film? You have distribution, right? Yeah, so, um, well, what happened was we uh, we were amazed. We actually, we got into Doc NYC, which, because, you know, and that's like the largest uh, documentary film festival in the States, and that really was very exciting and blew up, blew our minds because, you know, we just made the deadline to get it in to be considered and, you know, from our edit, and it, that was so exciting, and... Then we started to get other, we multiple interests from different distributors and just out of that. And we then, we started to get other festival invites, but <laughs> COVID shut us down. But fortunately, we'd been talking with uh, one distributor particularly, and we were also working with a consultant that we met at about our festivals and you know onward strategy so we we had hooked up with a consultant we'd met at doc nyc too which was really helpful um but we had a we basically had a deal coming so it worked out for us in the time of covid we actually found a distribution deal so the film is um being distributed um um, later this summer by Journeyman Pictures, their London-based uh, independent film distributor. So they're currently looking at TV broadcast stuff. Um, I don't know, you know, it's ongoing currently as we speak, and then it will be a worldwide streaming release. But right now, because of COVID, um, as most people are finding, there are no, you know, the new rules are there are no rules. The whole thing about digital distribution is all over the map. But we we are going to be, so one of the festivals we were going to be in has is going to be doing an online First of all, so there will be people can get a sneak preview of the film before its worldwide release. So in July, it's going to be part of the Salem Film Fest, and they'll be really, you know, setting up a link and selling tickets for that soon. So it will be seen. So one week in July, it will be available through Salem Film Festival to be seen uh, before our worldwide release. Nice. And is there a website or a way people can yeah. find out about that worldwide release when it happens? Yeah. So it's journeyman pictures and I can send you the link and you okay. can post can that. And I think it just says coming yeah. and the trailers there and it just says coming soon at the moment, but um, you know, that's, it's great. It, it, we've kind of, it's our baby, but we've just handed it over yeah. <laughs> to a distributor. So that's really nice. And then we, you know, there are, they also work with international festivals. So we may do, there might may be some other screenings uh, that come up like that, as well mm. as the availability um, on, you know, major platforms 
Um, but I don't know exactly what those will all be yet. Cool. Well, I hope it gets put up on a major platform because I would love for tons of people to see this film. I just think Suzanne is a great role model. <laughs> I think we need to see more people, like more women like Suzanne in our media. Yeah. Right? I I couldn't agree more. That's what yeah. I, I thought when the moment I met her, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is she's a tour de force. Yes. Um, <laughs> very cool. Nice. All right. So last question um, is about advice and what is the best advice that you've ever been given or maybe you have some advice that nobody ever gave you that you wish that they had? Um, well, uh, on a little level, funny level, um, I will confirm that filming with mannequins is much harder uh, than it looks and, and you do have to have a good sense of humour and lots of <laughs> patience <laughs> to make it happen uh, um so on a funny level yes that it, you know they say don't ever work with children or animals but i can tell you working with mannequins you, you would amend that to include mannequins yes, <laughs> yeah yeah but on a on a serious level you know the best bit of advice i was ever given which um i i'm happy to share is um I, I used to go to several, when I was just working on my first film, I went to a lot of industry meetups um, in DC. And then one of the best ones I went to, if anyone ever gets a chance to go to, is Sheffield Documentary Film Festival in the UK. It's amazing. They have incredible workshops. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people who work in the American, you know, indie film world, um and key players always go go to Sheffield too mm -hmm. it's very accessible um and the best advice I was given by a um I heard on a panel uh, at Sheffield was um you know you you have to enjoy what you're doing in the, every step of the way you know you've got to be really really 100% in yeah. the actual journey itself everything even the bad moments mm -hmm. as well as the good moments you've really got to embrace them and it's really an immersive experience and you've got to go with that um and that is the best advice I was ever given because it's so tough at times it's you can sort of get really sick of your film and what you're doing and sometimes you can't deal with it and you're dealing with all these challenges. But if you just remember, you know, why, you know, you've got to really love it. You've mm -hmm. got to love what you're doing on the bad days as well as the good days. Because in the end that, and this is the advice that was given on this panel, that you end up with a better film and you can see it in the film. Yeah. You know, you've got to love, your, love what you're doing, the story you're trying to tell. And because it takes several years, usually, mm -hmm. it's really important that, you know, that you have have that sense of it. So that that is the um, best advice I think I was given. And I will add a piece of advice that um, I always pass on is you can get away with some poor visuals sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. when you're like you're in a bloody car 
like we were <laughs> filming in a car um, or, you know, just not great backgrounds and challenging visuals, mm-hmm. but you will never get away with shit sound. Yeah. You, you, if your story is to be really, you know, taken on board by an audience, they have to hear it. They have mm-hmm. to hear everything well. Do not underestimate how important sound is. Invest in good sound yeah. in the field and then put the money into really good post-production sound. Yeah. Well, those are both great pieces of advice. So thank you so much. It was great speaking with you. Okay, you're very welcome and good luck with your own filmmaking journey. Thank you. Thank you.